Hello, my name is Shireen Jordan and welcome to Tea and Tonic. This podcast is about giving my guests from all different creative industries the chance to tell us about how they got to where they are today, while we both sip a tea or perhaps something a bit stronger with a tonic. It's a chance for those affected by the impact of lockdown, the opportunity to chat, because talking is, as the saying goes, just the tonic. I hope you enjoy it with a beverage in hand. It's Sunday, September the 13th, 2020, and my guest today is director, writer and playwright Debbie Isit from the Midlands. Debbie trained as an actor, studying performing arts for two years in Coventry. She graduated in 1985, getting a job with the Cambridge Experimental Theatre Company, touring Europe, performing Shakespeare. Debbie then went on to tour the world with her own theatre company, Snarling Beasties. In 1999, she made her first feature film, Nasty Neighbours, starring Ricky Tomlinson, which premiered at the Venice Film Festival and entered the Guinness Book of Records for the most premieres on the same night. In 2005, Debbie won a BAFTA and an Emmy for the adaptation of Jacqueline Wilson's novel, The Illustrated Mum, for Channel 4. Her 2006 film, Confetti, was nominated for a British Comedy Award for Best Comedy Film. Debbie's third feature film, Nativity, in 2009, starring Martin Freeman, received critical acclaim and interest from Hollywood and was followed by three more in the Christmas comedy franchise, as well as a successful touring musical. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Debbie Isett. Hello! Hi, Shireen. How are you? Yeah, I'm really good. Very happy to be here on this lovely sunny morning. Well, thank you for giving up uh, your Sunday morning to have a chat to me. I really appreciate it. No problem. Um, Right, Debbie, first of all, what beverage have you got? Well, because it's only 11.30 on a Sunday morning, I've got a cup of tea. Um, If it was after six, (laughs) it would definitely be a gin and tonic. But it's tea for me today. Excellent. Uh, Good choice. I've got a peppermint tea. Um, just so as not to overdo the caffeine that I've already had this morning. So, yeah. uh, cheers. Cheers. Slurp. Debbie, before we get on to all the amazing things that you've done in the last couple of decades, where did your love for what you do now come from? Were you involved in, in theatre making when you were at school? Because I know that you started out as an actor... Yeah, I mean, when I was at primary school, so going back as, you know, almost as far as I can remember, um, I would always want to be part of whatever was happening in front of an audience. So when there were little talent shows, and I'm talking when I was seven, eight, nine years old, you know, um, I would be the, the one who would always get my friends together and tell them what we were going to do. It was usually some kind of ABBA reconstruction or something like that. And I would definitely find the music. We'd learn the words. I'd choreograph something and basically direct, direct the troupe, you know, um, and win or lose. I can't remember whatever happened in any of our talent shows, but the endeavor was about di- directing other people into the best performance they could give and I think I've been doing that all my life (laughs) and I I mean it's hard to know where it came from other than you know I was part of a very big extended Catholic family so Mm -hmm. me and my sisters and my cousins were inseparable growing up Mm -hmm. and Sunday nights was the entertainment night and once again you know I was generally responsible I mean everyone collaborated but I was generally responsible for being the bossy one and you know we would reenact the Osmonds it was usually music 
Okay. You know, and um, we, we didn't care if we played boys or girls. Um, and we would just kind of put on shows for the, for the parents. Um, but we took it quite seriously. I remember getting sometimes quite cross, you know, if people were doing things wrong. So, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a natural extension for mm-hmm. me, I suppose, mm-hmm. to, to, to move into it professionally. Okay. I mean, I didn't know at the time that's what I'd do. Yeah. But looking back, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I've been doing it ever since I was born, I think. <laughs> so with the extended family, was it a bit like, you know, the Von Trapps, that kind of thing yeah I mean I, I'm not saying any of us could actually sing very well but we were giving it large you know we believed in ourselves and, and all of us as a troop as a group I mean there was probably you know 13 of us we joined the same dancing school then you know so from the age of 6 to 16 we were all together nearly all the time wow. three times a week dancing um, and many of us thought we'd go into that professionally but but I think only one of us did in the end but, um, that's so lovely that you know I guess that mentality that you had then of taking it seriously has probably stood you in really good stead for what you do now well I think it's just in you isn't it I mean I audition lots of children as you know and you can see it you know almost the minute they walk in the room it's you're born with this kind of passion need you know not just a desire an absolute need to perform or you're not you know it's it's not something that's taught really I mean technique can be taught as we know but but that sort of inner fire of this is I was born to do this you know that's in you or it isn't so what happened then when you were 16 and I guess options were open to you for further education or, or or getting a job yeah I mean at school I'd done the the secondary school school plays and all of that um but you know, I wasn't particularly academic. I didn't want to be at school. And I was a, a truant, actually. You know, I, I didn't go to school a lot of the time. And I got into trouble. My parents got into trouble because of it. They didn't know, obviously. But when they found out, <laughs> it was, you know, it was it was quite serious. And, and they were a bit disappointed. And they were like, what are we going to do with her? It was a bit like, how do you solve a problem, you know, like our daughter? And um, in spite of being encouraged to go to, to university and stay on school and all of that, I left school at 16 because I just didn't like the environment and I tried to get proper jobs in the real world and I did get some proper jobs but I got consistently let go from those jobs and there was something about me that couldn't quite focus or manage properly. Um, I don't know if I had a bit of ADHD, I'm not sure, but there was something about me that just couldn't quite get on in that sort of what I call the real world and so you know my mum in despair said you know you've got to go back to drama it's the only thing that's ever held your attention is acting and drama and so she sort of dragged me um to Coventry of all places it's only down the road really but um it's Coventry Centre for Performing Arts where all of these kids like me off the street were going to learn everything about the performing arts and and that was my two-year training and it was brilliant training because all of the teachers there taught at RADA and at Central, you know, it it, it happened to be in Coventry, but it could have been anywhere. And the training was absolutely brilliant. And so I suddenly became this kind of rebel, kind of um, no future uh, teenager. And I turned into a sort of master of understanding Stanislavski techniques and (laughs) Anton Artaud. And, you know, and I sort of just completely loved it. And I knew it was my forever career path then. But Debbie, don't you think it's so true amongst my friends, amongst people that I've spoken to on this podcast, when you find the right thing, the thing that is for you, it can turn your whole life around very quickly. So you can go from being perceived as that perhaps unruly teenager to suddenly when you found 
your niche, as, as cliched as it sounds, everything falls into place and makes sense. Totally. And, and I completely agree with that. And, and, you know, for me, had I not found that, I think I, I, God knows what would have become of me. You know, I, I wasn't going to be a very well-performing individual, you know. So it completely changed my life. It gave me a, a passion, a root, um, gave me a future, you know, and it it, um, it made sense of who I was. And I stopped feeling like the bad person, you know, and, and started to appreciate that I had some skills and talents and, and, and a reason for being put on the earth. That's how I felt. I honestly felt like, I get it now. This is why I'm here. This is what I'm meant to do. And, you know, kudos to your mum for kind of going, this is where you're going because this is what you seem to love. And so this is what's going to happen. She had that insight. She, she certainly did. And, and always listen to your mum, kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wish I'd listened to my mum a few times uh, years ago. But hey, I won't admit that to her. Um, so Debbie, you did your two years at Coventry, and then what happened? Because you did take the acting route for a while, didn't you? As as well as writing and crafting your own work. Yeah, I mean, I trained as an actor. That was the training. I mean, we did all sorts of other stuff, but I hadn't done any writing or directing really. And um, other than as I've already spoken to you about with my cousins and friends, um, I was lucky enough to get a job at the Cambridge Experimental Theatre Company. And they were all Cambridge graduates. So a sort of working class girl from Cov who'd left school at 16 was suddenly in amongst all these very, very intelligent, very academic um, experimentalists. They were a wonderful company. We did Shakespeare. We did it for two years all over Europe, um, performing to non-English speaking audiences. So the the form was very free and and, and was very visual and physical theatre. And um, that was a different way of working. We hadn't really done a lot of that at college. So when I, when I came out of that experience, which was very freeing, and I, I remember thinking, I love the method acting and I love Stanislavski particularly, um, but I've also now discovered this new physical visual theatre making and I wanted to put the two together and it was something I hadn't really experienced. I'd, I'd seen Complicite doing some really interesting physical theatre work, but I, I wanted to act like Robert De Niro, you know, and I wanted to put those two things together. And that was my vision for my company, Snarling Beasties, that I set up in the early 80s uh, or yeah, mid 80s. So um, that's what I did. And I wrote and I directed and I was in and, and, and I, I got, you know, obviously people that I trained with or met along the way into the company and that was 15 years then of my life of touring, writing, directing, performing. We built our way up from Edinburgh, really. We became the sort of darlings of the festival for a few years. We won lots of awards. We were taken to London. We did Donmar Warehouse, Royal Court Theatre. Then we started to go abroad, international, and we became, you know, the British Council funded us to go to all the major international festivals. So we were in Asia Africa, we were in America, we were in Australia, New Zealand, and, you know, it was just like being in a circus, really. <laughs> you know, we were together a long time, and, and the work got better and better, and we got more and more popular, and the shows got bigger, and um, eventually ended up in the West End, well, one of my shows did anyway, The Woman Who Cooked Her Husband. Mm-hmm. That was kind of it. it. It had been a brilliant time, but I was genuinely exhausted because I was doing it all. I was performing in it as well. You know, it was years and years of traveling, all that flying. It was, I mean, terrible for the environment, I now realize. But at the time, you know, we didn't really speak so much about these things. And 
I, I was just genuinely exhausted and I thought I need a real proper life. I need to stop touring. I need to settle down. I would love to sort of meet someone, fall in love, have a baby, all of those things. I want a life. So that's what I decided to go get myself. <laughs> okay, so you... And a new career. First of all, I want to ask you, did you all through this time have a kind of can-do attitude? Because obviously you're working with lots of different people and touring the world. Were you quite a confident person? I'm guessing you would need to be to, to be able to tick all of those boxes. I mean, you don't ever consider yourself confident. I think if you asked anyone else, they would say yes. Um, you know, I was a driven person more than I was a confident person. I definitely believed in the work we made. I mean, the work was amazing and it was obvious to see. It was there for everyone to experience. And, it, it, you know, it was a brilliant thing from that point of view. But we worked incredibly hard to achieve that, you know. But I was very driven. I just wanted to, to reach out to as many people as I could. I suppose I've always had this feeling of there's not enough time to do the things I want to do. And I'm always feeling like I'm running out of time. So I'm on a motor a lot of the time. But confidence is a different thing. Confidence is, you know, do you ever really feel confident? Insecurity is part of of being a human being, I think. Mm. And it keeps you humble. I mean, nobody likes confident people really, do they? No, I guess guess faking it is part of it, isn't it? You know, it's that kind of role play faking attitude. I think whatever gets you through is is fine. You know, I think you are who you are. You know, I, I'm a, you know, I'm the sort of person that is quite straightforward. You know, I, I do speak my mind probably more than the most. I don't know. But I just, I feel like, I, as I say, I'm on a mission. I've always felt like that. I probably am more tired now than I used to be in my 20s and early 30s. But, like, I, I'm on a mission and, and that's it. So get out of my way. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You've got lots to achieve and, you know, and you want yes, to do it. Yes, I haven't it. got time for any nonsense. <laughs> We've got a show to do or a film to make, so... I like that. And clearly, that is such an important trait in your armoury of how you've achieved everything that you have so far. So, you were starting to write. And where where did your inspiration for your writing come from? Because you mentioned the one, the woman who cooked her husband which has done incredibly well. Did you just start putting thoughts and ideas down on paper? Was it observations? I think I started to to just sort of write from life experience, really. That's, I suppose, as many writers do. And I mean, it, 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 it was only through lack of kind of having any work I didn't really want to be a writer it's just that there was I couldn't find any material that would facilitate this idea I'd had of physical theatre meets you know method acting and there were no parts for me (laughs) you know very limited parts for women even now you know so um it's like it had to be something created in a bespoke way um so I started to write about things that interested me which was human relationships and it remains the same now and so I wrote a trilogy of black comedies, I suppose, um, about marriage. And the first one was Punch and Judy, the real story. And that was about domestic violence. The next one was Femme Fatale. And the third one was The Woman Who Cooked Her Husband, about a woman who was married to someone having an affair. Um, and they were quite dark. They were quite strong. Um, they were pretty feminist, I suppose. And, and they were reflected who I was and experiences I'd had in my life. Not necessarily autobiographically, but people I knew, people I'd encountered. Um, lots of research went on as well. 
and I and I wrote I wrote the plays, but we always used improvisation. And because we were touring these plays for so many years in a sort of repertory system, you know, in order to keep it alive, we would, you know, I'd say to the actors, you know, just just change that line. I mean, you know what we're saying, but feel free to change the line. You know, make up your own version of that. Let's keep it. Let's keep it. You know, alive and on its feet. So we did that, you know, and it worked spectacularly well because because anyone who knows about theatre knows the words actually aren't what you're committing to as audience. It's the subtext. It's what's actually going on, what's happening, what's really being said, not not what the words are. So, you know, really trusting in that allowed me to, to begin this relationship I've had with improvisation, really trusting the story, the subtext, ownership of the characters, and not worrying so much about exactly what the words are. It kind of doesn't matter so much. And... Did your actors love that, having that freedom to explore and be a little bit experimental? Yeah, I mean, when anybody who's been in a theatre company for a long time, particularly, knows it's a kind of cult. You know, you're, you're in a cult, really. And, you know, you're all sort of trying to live and serve this kind of um, tablet of ideals. You know, OK, I probably did uh, present them in the first place, but sooner or later, people contribute and collaborate and you feel a joint sense of ownership about that. So you all feel like you're, yeah, you're, you're doing the thing you were meant to be doing, you know, and it's new and it's fresh and it's yours. So, Debbie, you said that, you know, after about 15 years... You were tired of playing all of those roles and you wanted a bit of stability. So how did you kind of halt that, if you like, and make a, make a change? Yeah, it was a quite a difficult uh, transition, really, in a, in, in a way, because I knew I wanted to move into film. I'd always used film uh, as a big influence on my theatre work anyway. My father had a, a video shop when I was growing up and so I'd sort of watched almost every film ever made. <laughs> And I was a bit of obsessed with films and, and, um, and particularly film acting, you know. So I kind of felt like I, I did want to make that move. But, you know, I, I, it was hard. I mean, you come out of theatre, you, you sort of got your own little world and then you try and move into another world and people are like, sorry, who are you? Mm-hmm. You know, and you go, oh, my God, I've been doing all of this. Um, and they don't know about it, really. And they don't care. <laughs> you know? So suddenly you feel like you have to start again. And, and that's what I did. And, and I just thought, I'll, I'll start from the bottom and I'll try and make a short film. And I didn't have the money to make a short film. So I, a friend of mine agreed to produce it and we raised a few hundred quid, like that was all, you know, and, and made my, my first short film. Um, and it was incredibly exciting, but it was scary, you know. And I, I was still doing a bit of theatre at the time and I had a Snarling Beastie show on at the Tricycle Theatre in London, as it was then known. Um, and I thought there's an opportunity here while I'm still making theatre to try and get somebody from the film industry to look at it because it's something I haven't ever done. And so one of the, my favourite filmmakers at the time was Mike Lee. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a great British um, author, obviously also used lots of improvisation in his work. So I asked him if he'd come and see the show and he, he turned up with, I don't know, I didn't know him at all. I just, you know, wrote to him and asked him and he, he turned up with 
with Alison Stedman, who was then married to him and, and his sons. And he came up to me afterwards and he just said, I just absolutely love that. I was absolutely brilliant. He said, um, you know, what, what do you want from me? Like, why, why have you asked me? And I said, I, I want to make films. And he said, well, come and see me, you know. And I went to his office a few days later and he chatted to me about, you know, the difference between the two mediums. He'd also worked in both mediums, you know. And he introduced me to some people that were making short films and... And he, he put a word in for me, to be fair, you know, just on the basis of seeing that show and at the BBC. And they gave me an opportunity to make another short. Um, and I made that other short. And then the BFI and Channel 4 liked that. So they gave me an opportunity to make another short. So I'm, I made about three or four short films. Mm-hmm. And that was my training in, into film. But for what it was worth, the difference between theatre and film, I was able to have my own sort of film school through those short films. Okay. I met my partner through that as well. And he's... Uh, edited all, all my films ever since. He's a film editor, so yeah. And and you say these short films, Debbie. How kind of what was the duration? Because I know that shorts can be anything from what fifteen minutes to fifty minutes. Oh yeah, no, they were short. They were like ten minutes. Okay. Fifteen was probably the longest. Uh, I think my first one was seven minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes. I think maybe the longest one I did was twenty minutes because the longer it is, you know, the more expensive it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But also short films are strange. You know, they're a hard format to get right. They're a hard form to get right because the short short storytelling isn't everybody's thing, you know, and it probably wasn't mine really. But for me, it was much more about making an impact, showing that I understood lighting and I understood storytelling and I, I understood the language of film. I mean, to be honest, I've been using the language of film in my theatre anyway, you know, and, and the idea of the edit in my scenes in, on stage, that my scenes are all short and quick and moving on all the time. And that's from the, the, the edit of, of, of filmmaking, you know, particularly Scorsese in particular, who I was also a massive fan of. So, yeah, it all made sense to me. But, you know, sometimes it's hard to convince and persuade other people, you know, when you're trying to change mediums, change anything, make any change. People are like, hmm. And I guess, like you say, you know, there is an element of financial backing that you need behind you to be able to create this work in the first place. And if you don't have that, you're stopped in your tracks before you can start. And I think particularly then, more than ever, because, you know, I don't really want to bang on about being an old person, but (laughs) there was none of this kind of video swimming on your mobile phone. You know, you had to do everything properly then. It was still film. It wasn't even digital. It was 16 mil 35 mil super 16 and it was expensive the processes were expensive your film had to go to the lab eventually you know it costs a lot of money so you're absolutely right you know all these films cost money and and uh, for people to part with their money is a is a difficult thing it's a difficult thing to get them to do for obvious reasons um you're only as good as the work you make mm-hmm. you know and that's your becomes your calling card you know and um so luckily for me um people did see something in those shorts and allowed me eventually to make my first feature film, which is the thing every filmmaker wants to do, of course. Um, So, yeah. So, Debbie, your first feature film, can you tell me about that and and how that came about? Yeah, again, it's it's a theatre-related thing because I've I've been commissioned to write a play um, to um, go in the Guinness Book of Records for the biggest premiere in the world. So this play I'd written was called Nasty Neighbours and um, it was performed by a hundred amateur theatre companies all on the same night. And that was the sort of record breaking bit. And I didn't really understand what what the idea was all about, but I did it and I was happy to be commissioned to write a a new play. And that play I adapted into my first film, um, 
so Nasty Neighbours was my first film and I'd made a short film with Vicky Tomlinson, who was in the royal family, uh, as, as you probably know. But more importantly, he had been working a lot with Ken Loach, who was another great filmmaker that I admired and I loved his working process. Again, not very script driven, allowing actors to, you know, be as real as possible. And so I'd asked Ricky to come and be in Nasty Neighbours. And as a, as a teenager growing up, my favourite film had been Quadrophenia, which was all about the mods. I was a bit of a mod in my youth. The, one of the brilliant, most brilliant performances ever was Phil Daniels in Quadrophenia. So I asked Phil Daniels to come and be in the film. And, to, you know, to my surprise and luck, they both agreed. So these two great actors um, were in Nasty Neighbours. And we shot it in Birmingham. I had a, 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 a fierce producer, a young woman, uh, Christine Alderson, who's still producing now. Um, and we had very little money, it was very low budget, you know, but it was freezing cold, uh, it was winter. And um, it, it was about two warring neighbours and their, and their wives. And we bought two houses that were for sale next door to each other, mortgaged it all up, moved the actors in, <laughs> shot the film, and then sold the houses again. <laughs> it was like, you know, it was all a bit Wild Westy in a way, but it was it's what we had to do to make it work. And um, I was also, you know, eight months pregnant at the time oh, with my first baby. So I, I was kind of terrified about, you know, anything happening to the, to the baby. And I was... I was acting in it. I was directing it. It was freezing, as I said. It was there was hardly any money. You know, the catering was terrible. You know, it was, <laughs> but it was so brilliant to be doing it. You know, and when we put it together, um, to my astonishment, you know, the film got invited to the Venice Film Festival, and um, I think it was probably the most magical thing that's ever happened to me in my life, really, because. The family came, you know, we actually finished the film like the day, the night before we were due to get on the plane to Venice. We had the reels out of the lab and mum had a reel, dad had a reel, I had a reel, my partner had a reel, the producer had a reel and there were six reels, I think. Um, and we all got on the plane. We went to, to Venice. We met Ricky at the Ricky Thompson at the airport. Then we all got on a gondola or two and floated down <laughs> the canals to the most amazing hotel, five star hotel on the Lido. And Meryl Streep was there. She came. I've had the baby now, so Meryl Streep was holding the baby, my baby. Harvey Keitel was there. Like. Every, all these glitterati stars were there. And we were part of this world. Like we come from this terribly tough, low budget film to suddenly be <laughs> like, we had a 10 to 15 minute standing ovation for our film. Um, there were 2000 people in the cinema. And I just thought I was in a dream. I just thought, what is this? This is like nothing I've ever experienced. I don't know what this is. Um, everywhere I went in Venice, the paparazzi were papping. I was being in. It was like, what is going on? <laughs> but it was the most tremendous experience. I mean, I absolutely loved it. And everyone that was there, part of it, just, we talk about it all the time. It was like a dream. It was amazing. That so, of course. Awesome. Yeah, it was fantastic. So then, you know, we came back. The film was released. Um, had quite a limited release here, but it was released in cinemas, and that's all I wanted, you know. And um, then the die, the die was cast. You know, I, I was a filmmaker. You know, I mean, that's what I wanted. And so I had another film, obviously, up my sleeve. And the question was who to make that film with, and how to get it financed, how to find my confidence in a way to say to talk to people 
um, in high positions like at Film 4 and BBC Films. Of how do I find my voice and say, actually, I don't even want to work with script. I want to work in this process. How do I get that across? And I didn't feel confident enough. Um, but I came up with the idea of making a very short version of the film in order to show them, because I didn't feel like I could tell them. I thought they'd just look at me gone out. So I thought if I show them what I mean, maybe that will help. And, and for sure it did. So, yeah. Debbie, before we come on to that, so Nasty Neighbours, that was 1999. Okay, what happened then next, Debbie, with, you know, you trying to showcase the short version of your film? There's so many little links before the thing that you want to happen happens. So, okay, I've got Nasty Neighbours, that's great. That's a film. And I can show that now. That becomes a sort of showreel, if you like. But it's just one film. And it also, I wanted to work with actors in a, almost a documentary way. And I've got this feeling that I wanted to make a mock doc, if you like, you know, mock documentary. Um, big fan of Christopher Guest, of, of Spinal Tap, Best in Show, all of those films. And I wanted to do something along those lines. But also this came from my feeling of wanting to to make acting as real as possible it's always about the acting for me how do you get the actor to be as truthful and real as possible well you put them in the realest situation you can so I I met two actors that I wanted to uh, work with and I I made a little film just just me and them and and my partner the editor made it together no money after Nasty Neighbours just to really try and test this process of can I put actors with real people into the real world and make a film where they're the only actors in it and nobody knows they're actors? Can I test that process? So that's what I did. And uh, the film Nina and Frederick, they were a, a tribute act to a very old 60s a duo called Nina and Frederick. And the task was, can I get them onto Stars in Their Eyes, which was a TV show at the time where you could be a sort of tribute act to um, famous singers. We set the task and I made as a documentary, followed them over six months as we tried to get them on the show. Um, we almost went on a cruise. We did lots of things. Um, it, it, the whole experience was absolutely hilarious. It was The film was a triumph, really. It's brilliant. Uh, accidentally, you know, it, it is what it is, but it was absolutely brilliant. And I showed both Nasty Neighbours and that Nina and Frederick film to a casting agent and said, I want you to try and get me Martin Freeman, Jessica Hyde. You know, I listed the actors I wanted to work with. Can you show them these films and see if they'll come on a little journey with me? I want to make a new film and it's going to be different. It's going to be improv. And she did. Rachel Frecker, the casting director, she, showed, she got the team of people I wanted together and she showed them these films. And, um, do you know, they all agreed to come and make this teaser for nothing on the basis of those films. And particularly maybe the Nina and Frederick one, because it's, it's so interesting, the process, you know. And I said to the, all the actors, I'm, I will be putting you with real people in this film, you know. And that excited them, you know. Mm. So we went to the National Wedding Show and they... I mean, Martin was quite well-known because he was done The Office, I think. Mm -hmm. But a lot of them weren't that well-known. And they were able to pass themselves off to the wedding industry as people who were just getting married. And I passed myself off as the documentary maker. And that is how Confetti was born. And that is how Confetti got made. Amazing. So the seed was planted very early on and you grew it and grew it and grew it until it right. almost had this process of metamorphosis into something else. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And um, <laughs> Confetti, I remember going to the cinema to watch it, Debbie, 2006. It was nominated, wasn't it, for a British Comedy Award? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a huge and it was a great, success. It was a really great comedy cast, you know. At the time the film came out, they were all firing on all four cylinders, that cast. You know, they were in their own right. They were doing brilliant work. Um, but I think it was the process that attracted them and the process that really won out in the end, you know. Um, they just loved working like that. I certainly did. And, you know, it was a big surprise to me that, you know, uh, Fox, 20th Century Fox, Fox Searchlight, picked the film up and, and and that was completely unexpected you know we thought it was a BBC films funded project and we thought it would get a very low-key release in art house cinemas a bit of a cult movie kind of thing mm. but when Fox bought it at Cannes they had a different idea they were like no we we want to make this a big smash you know so before I knew it I was back on the plane over to LA test screening the film in Pasadena with American audiences, Mm -hmm. you know, talking to Fox a lot about, you know, how to finish the film, you know, um, what kind of film it should be, the marketing release. It was just a massive deal, you know, but it came from nowhere that. And, um, you know, I never expected to to see confetti on the sides of buses and and all of that and have this massive premiere. And, you know, I just had no clue that was going to happen. but again, you know, it, it, it was just a, a brilliant calling card for the next thing. You know, it, it's like, great, you know, that's happened. And, and I know the process works. And what's more, so does the industry now. So I'm allowed to work in my process. And for me, that was everything. It was like, I don't have to follow the rules because I've created this new rule and it's what's paid off. Mm. People are earning money. Not me, by the way. <laughs> But, you know, distribution companies, the BBC, you know, they were happy, you know, and, and they were like, to be honest, after confetti, you know, what do you want to do next? And I never thought that it would happen like that. And um, relatively quickly, I suppose, for me. So it was like, OK, what do I want to do next? And this idea of, you know, a, a little primary school teacher and, and these kids doing this Christmas thing just wouldn't go away. I'd had this idea, you know, watching my daughter's nativity show and and her male primary school teacher, who was the only male in the school, was so passionate about the show. And I suppose he that teacher was a bit of a mixture between Mr. Poppy and Mr. Madden's. Um, but I love the idea of this man in this sort of very female world of primary schools being so serious and passionate with these little tiny children, trying to make them brilliant and everything going wrong, you know. And I just thought, that's it. That is the germ of a really big idea for me, you know, and, and that's what I want to do. And again, I had no clue that that would blow up in the way it has into a sort of franchise, you know. Um, but I did know there was authentically brilliant children living amongst me, you know, that Coventry, my home, was the only place to, to make this film. And I really wanted to do it. I mean, in, in between times, in between Confetti and, and Nativity, there was a moment where I was asked to relocate to, to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. and. You know, it was a really difficult decision in, in a way because obviously, you know, I had these big major agents um, after Confetti wanting me to go live in LA and make all of the wedding films. That's what they do. That's what they do. They go, okay, she's made a wedding film. We love it. Um, so I was, you know, basically offered all of those rom com wedding films that are coming out. And, 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 and it was sort of tempting because, you know, they're big, Films, big stars, big money. I mean, I you know would have been actually been paid properly and stuff, and um, and a whole different life. Yeah. 
But when I was reading the scripts, you know, I, I met all the studio bosses and I read lots and lots of scripts. And I just kept thinking, you know, I know that there are other filmmakers in the world who could direct these films just as well as me, maybe better, maybe worse, doesn't really matter. I, I don't think that's what I've been put on the earth to do. I think I've been put on the earth to do something different, to more bespoke, more about working class people in Britain. Like that's maybe, maybe that's what I'm meant to be doing and, and telling stories about things that I really care about and really passionate about, like education, like class, like all these things. And um, maybe, maybe I shouldn't be seduced by these big ideas in Hollywood and they'll never let me work in that process there. You know, I'll lose all of my creative freedom and I'll sell my soul to the devil. So I I came home and decided to make Nativity and I'm in no way do I regret that decision, you know, uh, 10 years on. That is, that's incredible, Debbie, to to not be seduced by that dangling financial carrot because so many people would. And like you say, you know, big money, big studios, big names, it must be really, really tempting. Um, it, it shows a real I know, strength of your character and, and that determination that you had as a child, knowing how you wanted things to be then, you kept that same approach. Yeah, I mean, I think it's partly to do with knowing yourself and knowing what makes you happy and and sort of trying to get back all the time to that nine-year-old directing your cousins, that freedom, that, that euphoria, that sense of this is the most brilliant thing in the world, you know, being with people you love and care about, bossing them about a bit and putting on a show or the equivalent, you know, no one telling you what to do, you know, brilliant. Um, giving that up, you know, it, it wasn't worth the money. You know, in the end, I knew myself too well. And I, I just think I need to be free to be creative. And, and I feel like I need to speak to my tribe. I need to speak to my people. And I think the people who love the nativity films are my people, <laughs> you know, and, and they're different people to, to, to the people that would have watched those studio films. And yeah, it just feels important to me that, and I suppose as a filmmaker, there's that internal voice that you have anyway that's extremely strong. So you're following that. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's to do with the, the auteur thing, the writer-director thing. It's to do with that. It's, it's to do with, you know, not wanting to lose that voice, not wanting to give that up, you know. Because some of those, those scripts, those wedding comedies were brilliant, you know, and, and, and films I, I did go and see and would go and see. But they're not me, they're not mine, you know. So, um, yeah, I didn't want to be a job. I've never been a jobbing anything, writer or director. Like, it's always been about creating a world um, and, and having a vision. And it seems to me, Debbie, that you put so much of yourself in your work as well. You know, you're talking about using the Midlands and, you know, where you're from to have an effect on the films and using, you know, local children to be a part of it as well that is really important to you. It is, and it's to do with authenticity, and it's going back to this idea of the sort of documentary and, and um, the cinema verity, if you like. You know, how do you create film that feels at once, at the same time, blown up, big, fun, almost American in its kind of colourful, um, comedic tone, 
and universal in its appeal, but at the same time, so real, actually. You're in a real school, you've got real children, you know, so that you can barely find the line, you know, sometimes between acting and, and reality. It's to do with that mashup. That's the thing I love. I love this idea of, you know, I don't want to make films like Ken Loach that, that are almost documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, because he does that brilliantly, I, and I'm more interested in comedy, you know. So, but I do want that truthfulness. So I have to find the way of making that possible. I have to, you know, create the recipe and ingredients, you know, to, for that to work. And it's a very particular thing that I like doing. I mean, that's all. <laughs> and Debbie, talking about nativity, it is really incredible. The children that you've used in it it almost feels at times like they're not acting. I'm like, where did she get these children from? You know, were they trained? It's phenomenal. And not just in the film, but of course there was the musical version as well that you created. And again, that on stage, which I saw about a year ago in Southampton, um, the children again, they shone. What was that process like, bringing the whole thing together? Because, you know, there's that old saying, never work with animals or children. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I clearly love working with animals and children. <laughs> um, yes, in that order. <laughs> love the animals. Um, but um, I love I love the children. And it's all in the casting. You know, it's, it's all about shining a light on the sort of children that wouldn't normally go up for things like this, you know. So yes, they may have it in them. Yes, they were born to do it but they aren't necessarily um, en route for that. You know, they're a bit like me as a kid, like they want to do it, they love it, but you know, they don't come from that world. So they need direction. They need someone to like my mum to say, I think you're good at this and I'm going to put a light on you, you know, and you may look really shy, but I think if I, if I coax you a bit, you'll come out of your shell or, you know, you may look like you're a bit naughty, but I think if we work with you, you'll find some discipline. And it's about that. It's, it's about just looking for children that, that are happy to be there, that have something to offer that perhaps other people wouldn't necessarily be looking for. Because what I don't look for are people that can read a script, because they never get a script. Mm. I don't look for people that can say a line that somebody else has written. I'm asking these children to speak in their own voices. I feed them a line, but I tell them they can say it however they want. And it becomes a very natural process. So, so they're very natural because of the process, but also because of who they are when they come. And it's about picking them out. And it takes a long time. And I work with a brilliant team, you know, of both the films and, and, and the shows. And, and when I say the team, I mean, you know, the care that we take with the kids. The chaperones are amazing. And they're not, they're not just you know, timing how long they work and making sure they've got the right sandwiches. You know, they're working with the children all the time. They're watching them. They're inspired by them and they're inspirational to the children. They form amazing relationships. And I've used so many brilliant casting people with the children. And it's just about bringing it all together. We work, it takes us a long time to find the right balance but we always get there and it's like family you know for me you have to try and create a family because well that's what I want I want that family feeling and it's very important that we have a positive feel-good experience because it's a positive feel-good show you know you know and so are the films so you're trying not to have any difficult moments really 
And Debbie, what's it like casting the adults? Because you said early on you had the idea for Martin Freeman. How hard is that, knowing who you're looking for, who you want? And I guess at times maybe who you want isn't always available because they're held up with other projects. Oh, I mean, casting is for, for, for anyone who, who works in film, particularly in film, but also in theatre, knows that casting is, it's a challenging thing. I mean, I am very, very clear about the kind of actors I like to work with. They have to be the right animal, <laughs> children animals. You know, they have to be up for this process, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. They have to have naturally funny bones. They have to be warm. You have to feel like audiences will like them. You know, they need to be sympathetic. They need to be intelligent and boy, do they need to be fearless. You know, so I'm looking for a lot of things when I look, look for actors. And obviously I spot them as, as anyone does, as we all do when we watch film and television. Oh, I like that actor. And, and this is why I like them. And we know why, you know, and I like that a- actress, you know, and, and, and so you, you're always doing that and you try and get the ones you love from the, from the people you've seen. And as you say, half the time you can't afford them. They're not available. They're not interested. For a million reasons, you can't get the people you, you want and need. And for film, you know, you do need certain people in order to get the money. It's as simple as that, you know. But for theatre, it's less pressure. For, for me, it was less pressurising from that point of view. And I was able to, to cast more of the people I just thought were brilliant. And that was very liberating. And, um, you know, musical theatre performers are, I think, uh, again, on the whole, incredible. And um, it's been a real privilege, you know, working working with them over the last three years on the show, for sure. The movie, well, movies, Debbie, plural, are incredible. And the story transfers so well to stage, too. It's the most happy, uplifting, joyful, wonderful thing to watch. You know, it warmed my heart. At what point did you know there was a second film in it and a third and a fourth? As soon as the first film came out, my first thought was the stage show because it it just felt like that's something that could happen to this film. It feels right. It feels like it would work. So I, and other people said so too. So I sort of had that in my mind quite early on. In terms of the second film, the experience was so profound for me working with these local children particularly you know it was such a profound experience that I, I knew I wanted to do it again I didn't know if I'd be able to do it again but um I knew there was more story to tell and I knew the Mr Poppy character had miles to go um and at first I'd, I'd wanted to take Martin into the second film with me but he just landed you know that little film Lord of the Rings oh, and um gosh. And uh, that was that. He was gone to New Zealand for about 25,000 years, you know. So otherwise, had he been willing and available, I I, I had a whole story around Mr. Madden's and Jennifer's second second movie. And when Martin went, that went. And I was like, oh, maybe that is the end then. Maybe I'll, I'll do something new. And then I kept thinking, well, maybe I can bring in a new teacher. What would happen if I did? And so I just started to explore that idea and... Do you know what? I just thought, no, I love this idea, you know. Um, so when David Tennant agreed to come on board, that made it a go project, really. And and um, so I suppose in a way, I, I think I would keep making nativity films forever. But um, it's never a foregone conclusion. You know, you have to present your vision for it, your package, your cast, your story and 
people will say yes or no to that every time you start from scratch. It's only looking back, oh my God, I've made four films of, of Nativity. That's amazing. But um, I think probably now for the moment, because of the stage show as well, I've been in that world very intensely for a long time. And so I think right now I want to do something new and I will go back to it, mm-hmm. but I want to do something new. So I'm, I'm planning that for next year. <clears throat> now. Yeah. Well, Nativity Rocks, Debbie, which came out in 2018, the cast has got even more star-studded. Ruth Jones, Celia Imry, Anna Chancellor, Craig Revel Horwood, Helen George, Hugh Dennis. <laughs> Were they, like, banging on your door to say, you know, we'll be in it? Yes, please. I don't think anyone's ever banged on my door. <laughs> ever? <laughs> maybe, maybe, you know... Something from Pretty Little Thing. I don't know. I tend to bang on their doors, you know, and ask them. I mean, through casting and agent. I mean, I don't necessarily pick up the phone and speak to them directly. I don't know most of them before I work with them. But I always have to have a phone conversation with them or a face-to-face meeting with them because there's no script. So, you know, every time I'm casting, it has to be me talking to them about it. And that is a really good process because it means... I get to explain how things work. We get to actually talk to each other, you know. And I think at the end of that conversation, genuinely, you know whether it's going to happen or not, whether someone wants to do it or not. And um, yeah, it's 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 a good it's a good process. And I'm very lucky to have had all those people in the films. I guess the films are, are known now, you know. So rather than needing a script, they can just look at the other films and decide if they want to be in the new one. You know, it's a bit like that. Um, it's its own brand now almost, isn't it? And Yeah. Wow. For sure. And this is what you have created. It must feel wonderful. Yeah, I mean, it's hard work, actually. Like, it's really hard work. But for me, the real pleasure comes from doing it, like actually working with, with the actors and the kids and the animals. Like, I love actually doing it. Uh, working with my partner on the edit and the, and the songs. We, we love working together and that's a real privilege. The whole family atmosphere, you know, our daughter's part of it. That And working, you know, in our region and promoting our region, all of that is really exciting and brilliant. But the thing for me that makes it really worthwhile is knowing that it affects people. It, you know, that's as simple as that. It, knowing that people's hearts can be uplifted, you know, particularly at Christmas time, but at other times too, and that children love it and it gives people hope. I think for me, that's the magic of it. And it's the reason why I like to keep doing it. Debbie, I didn't mention earlier that obviously you are a uh, BAFTA award-winning director as well. You won a BAFTA and Emmy for the adaptation of Jacqueline Wilson's novel, The Illustrated Mum, for Channel 4 back in 2005. So that happened before Nativity came along, didn't it? It was just, yeah, it was just after Confetti came out, I think, or just, just I was filming Confetti, maybe, I think I got that call um, that said you've been nominated for a BAFTA. And I was like, oh gosh, um, that's amazing. So yes, I was delighted to win that. And I'm a big fan of Jacqueline Wilson's novels. So it was a wonderful privilege to adapt that novel. And um, it's a brilliant novel, actually, The Illustrated Mum. So yeah, it was it was a fantastic moment, and that, and that of course got me into the world of BAFTA, and of which I'm been a you know a long time member now, and um, just being in the industry, you know, I'm I'm the kind of person that's an outsider, you know, and I I, I not 
even not living in London or LA puts you out, or New York puts you outside of the industry to a certain extent. You know, and I don't have lots of friends in high places, so to speak. You know, I tend to keep myself to myself and just do the work. So it's nice every now and again to be part, feel part of the industry. And that was definitely a moment. And it's allowed me to, you know, sort of go to BAFTA in Piccadilly and, you know, have a cup of coffee and, and see other filmmakers. And it's nice. It's amazing. Debbie, how has lockdown been for you, you know, the last five and a bit months? Has it scuppered projects, stalled work, or has it given you the time to work on things from home? Yeah, I mean, it did scupper the momentum of my new film because I think that's sort of how it works. When you're making a film, it's about momentum. It's about... You know, you get a piece of the money, you get a piece of the casting, you get, and that means you get another piece of the money. You're just about to go for that, you're just about to go, and then suddenly it stopped. And we were really getting there with, with our project, and we were aiming to shoot August this year. Oh. And, and that went. And then you sort of feel a bit sad and you feel a panic, like everyone did, I'm sure. You know, um, and obviously I had the show as well was going again this year, but at Birmingham Rep this year for seven weeks, and that you know, it, it feels like is untenable now because you, you need time to plan and prep it. So so in a way, yes, my two projects for the year disappeared along with, with everyone else's. Um, but what I did find was that having that time, you know, not running up and down to London all the time and not, you know, kind of doing lots of meetings and all of that, I did find myself writing, you know, more and um, and just have it, giving myself time, I suppose, to amuse, think about my future, what I want to do next, you know, various projects and keep trying to get the momentum back up for my new project so that we can film it next year. So it's been a really busy lockdown for me, um, but also really incredibly creative and um, the awfulness of it aside, it's been a really positive thing for me because I have been able to, tune into myself um prioritize the things i want to prioritize instead of being told what's important by other people and and um yeah just just sort of go back to writing really which is something i have to do i mean i always do write i mean all all my films and shows i write them i just don't share that with anyone (laughs) i don't share the scripts you know but they're in my head and i've kind of come up with them so being able to do that quietly on my own has been really quite lovely and um, I'm quite excited at the prospect of the projects I'll, I'll have next year, you know, and I think it will take time for us all to get back up and running properly. But um, I've also been really busy, you know, doing things like this, you know, doing lots of little interviews and po- not, this is my first podcast, I think, actually, oh, ever, actually. It's really exciting. But, um, so, but you know, so in terms grateful. of... In, no, it's been lovely. And in terms of just like interviews and things like that, that's been kind of nice and fresh and fun and lots of Zoom meetings, you know, Zoom, 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 Zoom. Everyone's been Zooming, haven't they? And the best thing of all, I suppose, is is having our daughter with us, you know, for half a year, you know, and um, now she's gone back to college. But it's been lovely having that family time. So I think lots of us have found some really nice things about it in spite of the the horrors of, of much of it. I know you can't talk about the project that you're working on, Debbie, but is it a film? Is it a series? Are you allowed to 
say oh yeah no it's a film it's a feature film and you know we're all sort of praying that Tenet has sort of saved cinema <laughs> you know, with a, with, that cinemas will reopen robustly you know I know they're opening up now but that that it will come back bigger and better and bolder because you know, there's so many terrifying stories about it's the end of cinema you know it's the end of theatre you know everything's over you know and you just think, well, I don't know, deep down, I don't believe that. I kind of feel like people do always want to be together, having a common experience of theatre and film, you know. Um, so at the moment, it's a feature film for cinema. You know, if it ends up being a Netflix film or whatever, that's fine too. But it's a film and it's a musical. It's a young person's cast. So it's not children, okay. but it's it's kind of more older teens, if you like. Okay. Um, yeah watch this space watch this space yeah so debbie you clearly are extremely non-stop how do you relax wow um i think (laughs) uh people that know me well will know the word slush (laughs) um or froze i do like um, a frozen wine okay (laughs) of an um i i have some very nice friends around that I relax with, particularly on a weekend. I um, have my wonderful partner and we do a lot of walking. We walk out absolutely insane chihuahua for miles. Um, I do a bit of reading, um, watch a bit of telly. Um, yeah, just that. Sounds very, very lovely. And who would you say has been your biggest influence? Yeah, I, was th- I, I mean, you know, it's hard, isn't it? So many people influence one uh, across one's life. But I, I think I, I, for me, it's, it's a bit of a no-brainer. You know, it's just my parents because they are so um, supportive and they have always been so supportive and delighted by me entertaining them, you know, since I was little. They've always been like front row, front row of everything. And um, you need that in life, you know? You need people to believe in you. And they did. They have. They always have. They're, they're like my biggest fans. So I think, you know, if my parents don't like something, I think, whoa, what have I done wrong there? You know, where, where have I gone wrong? Because if they... And they, they don't always, you know, sometimes, oh, I'm not so sure about that one. I'm not so sure about that. I'm not sure that's as good as the other one. Oh, why? You know, I'm sort of interested. Um, they came from poverty, and they're very... I don't know, positive. They're both gay one a bit now, but they're very youthful. They're very passionate people and um, they're very funny. Like the comedy that's in my bones comes from them and sort of seeing life as a comedy, they've had some really tough things to deal with and they never stop laughing and um, or arguing actually. But they're kind of in me and and of course you know and 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 we're very close and um they're brilliant that was writer playwright and bafta award-winning director debbie isett don't forget to subscribe to future episodes from your preferred podcast provider and follow me on twitter at shireen jordan and on instagram at shireen r jordan